Uh, before I begin, I uh, want to tell you a joke. <laughs> so, first of all, good to see you. Thanks for coming back. You became the first night. Really appreciate that. Um, you know, certainly this is an opportunity for us to develop really um, important themes, and, and uh, certainly when it comes to discipleship building, it's a, it's a huge thing, right? But anyways, the joke I wanted to tell um, is a Bible joke, and I feel I can do that because I'm a priest, right? But um, I remember uh, years ago attending this thing uh, called the Ordinani Dinner, and so you've probably been there before. It's one of the, one of the best events, I think, in the Archdiocese of Toronto, and it's hosted by the Sarah Club, right? And so basically the climax of the Ordinani Dinner is... Um, basically, you have all these guys who are transitional deacons about to ordain priests in their respective dioceses, and, and they give their, their kind of witness testimony, their vocation stories, um, how they got called to the holy priesthood. And anyways, yeah, I remember years ago sitting at one of these dinners, and this guy was talking about the prophet Jeremiah. So it was this passage from Jeremiah chapter 20, and he, he kind of keyed in on that passage, which I'm sure you'll recognize when I say it, right? So, uh, Lord, you have seduced me, and I was seduced. Lord, you have seduced me and I was seduced. And so uh, he framed it in terms of like, you know, romantic undertones and whatnot. And so everyone's like, yeah, 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 it's fantastic. He's been seduced, right? And I remember sitting there um, thinking like, I think something's kind of missing here, right? So later on, <laughs> I happened to look up Jeremiah chapter 20. And basically the, the context, the context is always important, right? So Jeremiah does say that, but the context is that he's really in a pickle. Like people hate me, I'm about to be killed. Way to go, Lord, you seduced me and I was seduced, <laughs> right? That's the situation. And that kind of came to mind today because um, today it didn't play out exactly the way I thought it was going to play out. So um, I had in the, in the back of my mind that I would give myself like two hours, ideally three, to write the Relenting Mission, but just, you know, circumstances happen, right? And so what you're about to hear I wrote in like an hour. So, <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. I'm reminded of uh, my old spiritual director. Um, he, he once said to me, you know, uh, Eric, when you're writing a talk, um, the Holy Spirit is present, not simply in the preparation of the thing, but also in the giving of the thing. Well, Father Greg, we're gonna put that theory to the test, right? Because the preparation is certainly in a kind of minimal, right? So the Holy Spirit hopefully is present to us right now. So as a bit of a review, um, you know, if you attended last night or you watched it on, on the podcast, um, you know, we were talking about, first of all, the general theme of the mission, right? So living the church's mission. And last night, the only goal was to define the church's mission, right? So you look at uh, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations, in service of which is the going and the baptizing and the teaching, right? And so obviously it kind of begs the question, you know, what's a disciple? A disciple is this idea of, of following Christ with the entirety of my being, with the explicit intention of becoming another Christ in this world. So that was, that was, the, that was basically the gist of the first night. Night two and night three, basically, it's kind of fleshing that out, right? So once we've defined the mission of the church, making disciples, um, episode two, episode three is about how do we do that, you know? So tonight, the idea is how do we, how do we participate in the, in the act of discipleship building as an individual? And then tomorrow, it's all about discipleship building from a communal perspective. Like, how do we do this, like, together, right? So I guess um, the first thing that comes to mind with regards to tonight's specific topic, um, the idea of kind of clarifying terms. So I remember my, my good friend, Father Craig Cameron, uh, he lives in the Archdiocese of Halifax, Yarmouth, and um, brilliant guy. And I remember when he first uh, started doing his, his priestly thing, because he was ordained after me, um, I was asking him, like, you know, what are you doing in, in your parish settings, right? 
And one of the things he said to me was like, I'm starting up these discipleship groups. And that could be anything. It's kind of a catch-all term, you know? So there's you know, no real definition in terms of what a discipleship group actually is or what it does. So I said to him, like, what, what are you doing in these groups? And he goes, all I'm doing right now, Eric, I'm just teaching people terminology. Like, that is it. What do words actually mean? And the idea is that if you don't know what words actually mean, then you can't really think an issue through. If you can't think an issue through, then you can't really communicate, and we're kind of putting the, you know, the cart before the horse, if you will. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to clarify a couple of terms that are pertinent to tonight, right? So these are words that you hear in Catholic conversations in Catholic parlance, but people don't really know what they mean, right? Um, so the first word is evangelization. So we all know that um, evangelization is a thing that we're supposed to do as individuals and, and members of the Holy Catholic Church, but what exactly is evangelization? We have some idea that involves proclamation, but apart from that, like how do you actually define evangelization, right? So uh, evangelization comes from the Greek, euangelion, uh, which means good news, right? And so the obvious question, like what's the good news? The good news is Jesus Christ came back from the dead, right? So what are we proclaiming? The good news that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And the thing I want to impress upon you is that that's not simply a historical event. That's really, really significant. Because if the Lord, Jesus Christ, came back from the dead, what that means is that everything he said is true. His teachings about life, but particularly his statements about himself. I am the Son of God, and in fact, I am God himself. Right? So in a certain sense, by extension, when you're evangelizing, you're declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ, right? But that ties into the other term I want to clarify, this notion of the kerygma. You've probably heard that term before, right? Kerygma, again, in the Greek, it means proclamation, which in turn begs the idea, like, what are you proclaiming? And the kerygma, if you look it up on the internet, it's defined in many different ways, but basically the gist of it is, like, it's, it's the summary of, like, you know, the, the Christian thing, right? So here was the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He came down from the heavens. He became incarnate, became man. He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. He came back from the dead, the resurrection. And because of that, because of the Paschal mystery, he has won for us salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, the capacity to become children of God, and the idea of sharing in God's divine life, right? So that's the kerygma. Now, the reason why I'm spending so much time in this is because when you talk about evangelization and the kerygma and that sort of thing, it always involves the explicit reference to the person of Christ. So technically speaking, when we're talking about evangelization, it, it involves an explicit reference to the person of Christ, who he is, and what he's done, especially as it applies to us in terms of salvation history. And what that means for us is that everything that comes before that, which doesn't involve this explicit reference to Christ, is what we might call pre-evangelization. And if you remember nothing else from this evening, the whole idea is that you must take pre-evangelization really, really seriously. Because what happens a lot of times, people just kind of jump the gun. They just kind of join the battle. They don't take seriously pre-evangelization, and they get themselves into a pickle, you know? So the idea is that if I want to prepare myself for sharing the church's mission, as an individual, I need to take the act of pre-evangelization really, really seriously. So, with regards to that, right, pre-evangelization, perhaps I might kind of divide it into two categories, right? So spiritual formation and human formation. So we're just gonna take our time with this. 
Spiritual formation, some of the things you might hear might sound kind of obvious, but maybe not, right? So spiritual formation, it implies that you're praying, right? Um, I have this um, kind of funny pet peeve. I'm not sure if I want to say it. I'll say it, okay. <laughs> when, people often, when people kind of say things like, oh, you know, I'll pray about that, or I'll pray for you, I kind of throw up inside sometimes <laughs> because I think sometimes that's code for, like, I've given up, you know? I really don't think a lot of times it means that I'm really going to seriously pray, believing and trusting that God will make something out of the situation. I think a lot of times people say that, and it's code for like, this is totally a disaster, and I, we're just going to throw in the towel. So I'll, I'll, I guess we'll pray about that. All we can do is pray, Father. Right? How often do you hear that? You know. Um, but the idea is that there's prayer, and there's prayer, and there's prayer. Right? So there's a way to approach prayer which is um, serious, and intentional and efficacious. So if you kind of read um, the saints and the church fathers, like they all say, obviously, that you got to pray. They all know that. But if you read between the lines, they all hint at this idea of a holy hour. Like they don't say that, you know, unless you do a holy hour that, you know, salvation is in jeopardy. They're not saying that, right? But it strongly implied that if you want to become the person that God wants you to be, you could try your best to like incorporate into your daily routine this thing called the holy hour. In the holy hour, <laughs> basically it says, it's an hour, so like 60 minutes, right? Holy hour, ideally before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Maybe I'm the first person to say that, right? But um, I don't know. I don't think it's rocket science, right? So the holy hour is 60 minutes, ideally before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. So the thing I want to focus on there with regards to prayer is time and location. I mean, we hear all the time, like, you know, the world is God's cathedral. Yeah, I guess so. But the Lord is here, right? <laughs> the Lord is here in the Blessed Sacrament. So where is the best place to pray before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament? That's the best place to pray. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that the Lord, the sacramental grace that comes from you praying before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, it applies whether or not he's in the tabernacle. I don't know, maybe you know that already, but I think sometimes people tend to forget that. Like, unless he's exposed in the monstrance, I can't pray, you know? Like, no, no, he's, he's still there. It's just a really thin door, right? Um, now, I understand that, you know, say, for example, people watching now in cyberspace or whatever, not everyone has access to an adoration chapel or this and that, right? But something you can kind of do in the meantime, and this is something which is accessible to everyone, everyone can come to church a little bit earlier, and everyone can stay after Mass just a little bit later, right? And it adds up. Imagine if you came to Mass like 10 minutes earlier and you stayed like 10 minutes afterwards. Hey, that's 20 minutes, right? You're on your way. And the idea, again, of course, to focus on place and time, right? So 60 minutes, you build your, up, your way up to that. Um, and again, a daily before the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And by extension, the idea is that um, during that time, you want to focus on just kind of being with the Lord, right? So. Like, what you actually do during that time, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but like, you know, the Lord is, is just rejoicing in the fact that you showed up. And just imagine a situation where like, you put in the time like every single day, and sometimes you're having this deep meditation, sometimes your mind's a bag full of cats, like it doesn't matter, right? The Lord is pleased that you show up, and what you're doing, even though subjectively it might be kind of like weird at times, you're actually praying. So that's really important. And in terms of the sacraments, you know, to go to Mass as often as you can, hopefully it goes without saying, and to go to confession on a regular basis, right? I always remember Cardinal Collins speaking to us in the seminary, saying that, look, if you guys are ever feeling 
empty or sad or lost or confused, make a beeline to the confessional. Because a lot of times, you're clouded in your mind, and you think it's because of your circumstances, but a lot of times, it's because sin has kind of been allowed to accumulate on your heart. But especially as it applies to evangelization, right? Because um, you gotta recognize that always, I am a fellow sinner. You know, you hear that expression all the time with regards to priests. You know, how do you learn to be a good confessor? You learn, first of all, how to be a good penitent. But it applies to you as well. If I want to learn how to, to guide my fellow sinner or fellow disciple in the faith, I need to take seriously my own spiritual journey. And a big part of that is to go to confession on a regular basis, right? Now, another thing you can do in terms of your own spiritual formation is education, right? And this, this has different nuances to it, right? So certainly there's the doctrinal aspect to it. So, you know, whenever I, I show up on like social media interviews and whatever, people always ask, hey, Father, what do you recommend to read? And I always say, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and everyone's faces fall, right? They're like, oh man, the Catechism? <laughs> yeah, the Catechism. It's amazing. It's a lot more pastoral than you might think, right? I know it's thick. It might take a while to kind of get through that thing, right? But there's no substitute, right? That's issued by the church. If you want to know like doctrine from the source, you got to read the catechism, right? But education kind of goes deeper than that, right? Because there's, there's one thing about kind of like knowing what the church teaches, but apologetics, how to explain the faith to other people, that's a totally different thing, right? So you can know your faith, but how to explain it to someone which is convincing and which touches in the heartstrings and, you know, galvanizes the mind type thing, that's, that's a whole different skill set. But luckily, there's a lot of great resources for that too. So just off the top of my head, if you listen to podcasts, there's like um, Word on Fire by Bishop Robert Barron. Uh, Catholic Answers Focus is really good. Um, Council of Trent, so it's like council in terms of giving advice, so S-E-L as opposed to C-I-L, right? All those are really good. Catholic Lata, I hear that's, that's not bad. Uh, so uh, different things you can look at, right, or listen to. And the idea is that you, know, you play these things in the background, and a really good trick is that whenever issues come up, to ask yourself, like, okay, like, if this issue comes up or if this question comes up, before hearing the answer, maybe you press pause, right? But like, you know, what would I say in response? And then you press play and you hear how the person explains it. And maybe it resonates with your heart, maybe it doesn't, but the idea is over time, you, you build this repertoire of like, you know, okay, like different ways that this, is, this thing has been explained or different ways that this thing has been rationalized, right? And after a while, you have this whole repertoire. When a situation comes up, comes up rather, you are actually ready, okay? Another thing that's really important as well with regards to education is to become familiar with the culture. So there's this great um, Jesuit expression. The idea is, um, I'll come through your window, but you're coming out my door. <laughs> I'll come through your window, but you're coming out my door. And the idea is that wherever you're at, I'm gonna meet you where you're at, but you're coming out my door, right? So uh, I think it was Francis Xavier, you know, so when he was evangelizing in India, uh, he wore rags because Indians associated with, you know, holy men with people who were poor. But he didn't wear rags when he went to China because uh, the Chinese had a different notion of, of what it meant, you know? And so basically if you wore rags and he appeared in that situation, they wouldn't take you seriously. So he wore fine linens, right? Basically whatever works, right? So same thing with this, right? I, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I hate the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> I really do. But I've watched all of them. I've also watched the Twilight series. 
And the reason why is because, like, at the time, especially, those were, like, really prominent. And, like, there was something about these things that, that was kind of, like, stirring something in, in, in the hearts of young people. And, like, what, what is that, right? You know, even things like, you know, Snapchat or, like, Instagram or Facebook. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, I'll just learn what's going on here, right? This, this is missionary territory. And certainly there's a learning curve to kind of get acclimatized to these things, right? But it's worth it because you're familiarizing yourself with the culture and it gives you an opportunity to converse with people about different things, right? So maybe we can't talk about the nuances about the Trinity, but we can talk about the latest uh, Batman film that happens to be really popular. Another thing that's really important with regards to education, you gotta live with integrity, you know? You gotta live with integrity. So this is no small thing. Um, I heard a long time ago, um, I think it was a podcast where Brent Petrie was a speaker, I might be wrong about that. But he talked about how uh, basically, you know, a lot of times people fall away from the faith because their home life was not happy. Their home life was not happy. And you're like, what's the connection there, right? And the idea was that, okay, basically what's compelling, first of all, is what parents actually believe, quite apart from what they say, but also how they live their life, right? And so the idea is that if kids are watching you as parents, and they see that you're happy, and they see that you're joyful, and more to the point, they see that the reason why you're joyful and happy is because you're living the gospel to the fullness, that is way more compelling than anything you might say. But what a lot of these people were saying in terms of like filling out the survey was that, okay, maybe my mom and dad went to church and they talked about Jesus and like whatever, but I looked at their lives and they were miserable and they were bitter and maybe they were cruel. And so it didn't matter what they said. Their witness was not convincing. And that's the whole thing, right? So when I'm learning these things, it's not so I can have things to talk about at Catholic cocktail parties, right? It's really, really important that I take seriously my spiritual journey and it shows in the way I live my life, especially in how it translates to your personal joy. If you're living in the faith in such a way that you're turned in on yourself and you're not actually joyful, um, let's talk because there's something that, that's really wrong there, right? The gospel always leads to a sense of gift and joy and happiness and freedom if it's lived properly. If it doesn't lead to that, there's something off about your understanding of the faith or your practice of the faith. So really, really important to live with integrity. Now, in terms of like human formation, this is really important as well, right? So when it comes to pre-evangelization as an individual, certainly, you know, all those spiritual elements we talked about, all that's really important, but just to get the brass tacks and like human formation, that is really, really important. So the example that comes to mind um, in the gospel, there's a running joke among biblical scholars. They're like, you know what, if you look at the gospel, Jesus is always like going to a meal or having a meal or coming from a meal, right? He's eating all the time, right? And what's the common expression throughout the gospel? Like this guy is like eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. But I remember attending a retreat like many years ago, or I guess it was a conference for um, vocation uh, directors, but um, it was also for seminary formators, right? And what they talked about was that, you know, look, what is love? It was Dietrich von Hildebrand, right? Love equals time plus attention. Love equals time plus attention. So here is Jesus Christ, right? And in terms of like preaching doctrinal truths, that's, that's gonna come eventually. But what he does initially, when he encounters people who are in the midst of tax collecting and prostituting and like sinning, he eats with them. And what's implied in that is like tons of like just wasted in a certain sense, like time and attention. 
but he's buying something with his money. So it's, it's kind of inaccurate to say it's a waste of time. Because what he's doing, he's showing him, look, I, I love you. And I show you that I love you because I'm just spending tons of time and attention with him, right? And the idea is that in time, it earns him the, the right or the capacity to have difficult conversations with them, to present the challenging and difficult truth. And maybe they'll hear it from, they'll hear from him or they might not, might not hear it from someone else because this guy has proven through his time and attention that he actually loves us, right? And the same thing with us. Like, I remember uh, years ago um, watching the Oprah Winfrey show. I don't watch it a lot, but, you know, occasionally. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Phil was on, and he was talking about, um, like, boys who are, like, silent and sullen and stuff. And so there was a, a young mother who came on the show, and she's like, you know, um, my, my son, like, he doesn't like to talk to me, and I don't know, I just, I ask him how school is, and he doesn't say anything, and I don't know what to do. And Dr. Phil says, like, well, what does he like to do? And he's like, well, all he likes to do is play video games. And he's like, play video games, you know? Play video games with your kid. And maybe you don't like it, maybe you're losing all the time, but that's not the point, right? You're spending time with him doing something that he likes. And that counts. You might have to put in a ton of time at the beginning, but you're, you're kind of investing in the relationship, and that means the world to people, right? Another thing that's really important with regards to um, human formation, right? This idea of, of distinguishing between arguments and being argumentative. So, like, it's funny how a lot of times we don't know how to converse with each other, and we don't know how to disagree with each other. But the idea when it comes to argument is that, okay, based on sound reasoning, I propose that this is what I perceive to be true, or this is what I perceive that we should do. Being argumentative is like, I just yell. If you don't agree with me, I just yell louder, right? But that's not good. We should be able to have a conversation with each other where there are different opinions, different perspectives on how to approach different things, but we can maintain these, this, this tone of, of calm and civilization and talk about these things in a really intelligent sort of way, right? Final thing with regards to human formation, this might sound like uh, obvious, but not really. Um, you gotta be normal. <laughs> and it's one of those things. Um, you know, I remember Father John Ricardo, this American priest, he said, um, you know, it's a terrible reason to join a church because people are nice. But in the back of my mind, I thought, yeah, that might be true, but we can use that, <laughs> you know? And so, for example, if people are turned away from the gospel and the Christian thing because you're a jerk, like, that's not good, right? That's why, you know, when St. Paul talks about being all things to all men, that's, that's what he's talking about, right? Like, and that's why even in seminary formation, like, they're working on human formation to kind of file away our rough edges to make sure there's, there's no aspect of your personality which is turning people off. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, I, I should have a way of approaching life and relationships and conversation, which makes it seem like, okay, like, you know, being in conversation or relationship with me is, is a safe space, right? So being normal is a, is a really huge thing. Okay. Now, with regards to the actual work of evangelization, there's obviously a bunch of things to kind of consider there. First and foremost, in a certain sense, when you're talking to people explicitly about the person of Christ and the gospel and whatever, you gotta presume goodwill. You gotta presume goodwill. So Bishop Robert Barron talks about this in terms of the Augustinian anthropology, right? So you probably heard Augustine talk about this, you know, um, even the person at the doorstep of a brothel is searching for God. And people can't help but aspire to the good. Um, what does uh, Dr. Bob Schutz say, right? So behind every sin is a, a need which has not been met or a wound has not been addressed, 
and so on and so forth, right? And so even if I'm dealing with someone who is, seems to be firmly entrenched in like sinful behavior, I gotta trust and believe in Augustinian anthropology and presume goodwill. Even this person, even though there might be kind of, they might be kind of misguided in a certain sense, is aspiring for the good because he or she can't help it. I'll give you an example. Um, I remember once talking to uh, a young boy. I'll change the circumstances a little bit to make sure that it's not spoiled. But I was talking to a young boy in a pastoral situation. And, and so, okay, what's going on in life? And it's like, well, I find I'm like angry all the time. And uh, I'm yelling at my parents. And so I guess, yeah, I should you know, not be angry and you know, honor my parents. And you know, I guess God's displeased, but I hope he's, you know, whatever, hope he forgives me type thing, right? And I'm like, huh, well, what's going on in your life? Like, what, what's, what's happening in your life to make you feel, like, angry and why are you yelling at your parents and stuff? And all of a sudden, it's just like, you know, all, my parents will sometimes just leave without telling me. They'll just leave without telling me. And I'm like, I'm so scared because I'm all alone in the house. And they come back and I start yelling at them, you know, I start screaming at them. Like, why did you leave me alone? I start crying and stuff. And they tell me you shouldn't yell and you should respect your parents. And so I guess I better not yell and respect my parents, you know? It's like, oh, buddy. Right? Another example, um, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, um, you probably remember this, like years ago he gave this example, he said, um, a prostitute who decides one day to start using a condom is taking a first step towards moral responsibility. I don't know if you remember him saying that, but I remember at the time it, it was this huge uproar. It's like, what? What's, what's the Pope saying? Is he advocating <laughs> like contraception? Does it matter if it's a male prostitute, a female prostitute? I think it was like Dr. Janet Smith, who was like, no, like, shut up, people. Like, basically what he's saying is that, let's say there's a bank robber, and he's robbing banks. And he's not quite to the point where he can stop robbing banks, but he's like, you know what? Instead of using a loaded gun, I'm going to use an unloaded gun. That's the first step towards more responsibility. So here's someone who's like making an incremental progress towards the actual good. Still robbing banks, that's not good, but you know, at least they're using an unloaded gun, right? And for us, when we meet people where they're at, it's important to kind of recognize that. And it's something we tend to forget when it comes to evangelization. It's not simply saying, like, don't do that, don't do that. This aspect of the culture is incompatible with the gospel. It's also affirming seeds of the gospel truth, which already exists in the culture. And that's a really important thing when you're dialoguing with people about the gospel. Like, when I'm talking to this person, even though they might not have received the fullness of the Catholic thing, right? Do I recognize the good and the true and the beautiful and who they are and what they're doing? And do I have the mindfulness to reflect it back to them, you know? Like maybe, okay, yeah, maybe you're not a full-fledged practicing Catholic, but do I recognize that, wow, like here's this thing about yourself which is amazing. Here's this thing that you're doing which is absolutely incredible. And I just want to tell you, like, look, I see that. I think it's amazing. I think it's wonderful. And like, you know, well done. You know, praise the Lord type thing. It's funny how we tend to kind of forget that, right? But affirming goodwill, affirming the good in other people is really good. Also recognizing opportunities, right? And so, again, Bishop Robert Barron talks about this, right? So there are different opportunities which come up in life. There's a, there's a running um, joke amongst priests that, like, most priests don't like um, to do weddings, but they love doing funerals. And it sounds sick, <laughs> but the idea is that when it comes to funerals, like, kind of like death is in the air, obviously, right? And so what happens is that people are more open to receiving the truth because they're reflecting on their own lives, you know? So that's, that's what happens. Sometimes when there's like death and suffering in the air or people experience failure, 
there's a certain openness to receiving the truth, whereas before in different circumstances, it might not be the case. But regardless of those limited experiences, again, just to kind of read the tea leaves, right? So I'm talking to someone, what can the situation bear? I can't tell you how oftentimes I'm like talking to people and they're telling me what, they've, what they're saying to other people. And they're saying these things and they're expecting me to be like, oh, that's fantastic, you said this and that, good for you for setting up for the Christian thing, right? But then what I, say, what I actually say in response is like, well, what did the other person say in response to what you said? And they're like, no, nah, don't know, I forgot. <laughs> so it's like, that's not good. So basically you were just talking to this other person, but communication wasn't happening. It wasn't like a two-way thing, right? So um, I always remember my spiritual director saying to me that when you're dealing with someone, um, you don't need to look up for the knockout punch. So you're with someone and you're dialing with them and in your mind perhaps they're at minus 50. In your heart you want to bring them to plus 50. And the way he phrases it is that your job is never to bring that person from minus 50 to plus 50. Your job is to recognize that God's grace precedes your presence and precedes your action. Right? And God cares way more about this person than you do. So your job is to cooperate with God's grace which is already present, already active, working in the heart of that person to bring that person not from minus 50 to plus 50, but rather from minus 50 to minus 49. And then, okay, till the next moment. And when you look at it like that, it becomes a lot more manageable. But that brings us to like, kind of like the, the thing about conversation, right? So when you're talking to people and you're actually in the moment, okay, we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about Jesus Christ, like how do I navigate those conversations? To recognize, first of all, that it is a conversation. Right? So it's not just you talking at the other person. So the focus on, I would say, the Socratic method. Like, ask questions. So, okay, like, you know, tell me about yourself. Um, and tell me, like, okay, with regards to this issue that you've raised, like, what's your opinion on that? Why do you think this? And so on and so forth. It's almost a variation of the time and intention thing, because what happens is that the person realizes, wow, this person is actually listening. This person is actually showing an interest in, in what's on my heart, what's on my mind. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of more willing to self-disclose. And the natural questions, if you will, will kind of arise and you respond to that. So that's really important. The other thing to keep in mind when you're engaged in conversation that's explicit is, is don't bluff. There's no shame in saying to the person, okay, there's this question you've raised. I have no idea what the answer is. The worst thing you could do is kind of bluff and say something which is kind of right which means it's totally wrong, right? So um, if you don't know the answer, don't guess, don't bluff, say, look, I'll get back to you later. Final thing with the other conversations, um, again, to remember you don't have to accomplish it all in one go. You don't have to accomplish all in one go, right? So you're part of something bigger. I mean, tomorrow we're gonna talk about how we kind of move the thing forward in terms of parish community, universal church, but to realize, especially in these situations, I'm part of something bigger than myself. So it doesn't ride simply on me to convert this person. God is always the author of conversion. I'm, I'm just called to play a small part to move the situation along. Okay, one final thing. I know when it comes to evangelization, a lot of times there's this notion of like fear, right? So people are always afraid of like having those types of conversations. They know they're supposed to have them. There's a certain sense of apprehension when they're in the midst of it. It's like, oh my gosh, I feel so much fear. I feel so much terror. So kind of like, what do, you, what do you do about that? To recognize, first of all, that we don't live in a neutral environment. So sometimes we try to rationalize things by saying, well, you know, I don't want to impose my views on other people. And they think this, I think that. We can just kind of stay in our corners. But we don't live in a neutral environment. 
And Ralph Martin talks about this, right? Like the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring collectively to bring people down, to pull people away from the light and into the darkness. And so given all that, like what do we do? Like we have to step into the fray, even though sometimes we don't feel particularly equipped. So that's kind of the first thing. The other thing, though, to keep in mind is this notion of like the subjectively satisfying versus the objectively valuable. I think it was Bishop Robert Barron quoting Hans Urs von Balthasar. I remember giving a homily about this a long time ago, and I used the example of fried chicken. And people never remembered the actual concept. All they remembered from that point on was, I love fried chicken, which is unfortunate. But anyways, Bishop Robert Barron, he talks about this, right? So he's like, okay, certain things are subjectively satisfying. So for me, I, I, love, I love fried chicken. I don't eat a lot. <laughs> I don't want to go on a huge tangent. But like, I, I don't feel the obligation to evangelize on behalf of fried chicken. You know, it, I don't love it that much because it's subjectively satisfying. Like I love it, I really do, but I don't feel like, you know, it's just so amazing everyone has to love fried chicken. I don't care, right? But when it comes to things which are objectively valuable, like this is something which can make your life amazing. And in fact, this is the only thing that can make your life fully the thing that you want it to be. Well, you have to share that with other people. And so that's, that's kind of the thing, right? So maybe my hesitation lies in the fact that I simply see the faith as being subjectively satisfying. Because if you saw it as being objectively valuable, like nothing could stop you. You would go forth because like, look, I love you so much. Like you have to know about this thing because I can't imagine my life without it. It's made it so completely amazing. And because I love you as my son or my daughter or my husband, my wife, my friends, I have to share this with you. Not because I'm trying to impose my views on you, but because I want you to share in a joy that I have through knowing Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.